turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 1411. Um, If you're a guest with us this morning, we're working our way piece by piece through the Bible book of 1 Timothy. And we've reached the end of chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Now, it's interesting as it begins there in verse 14, it says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment. Now it's interesting that we see in these verses a, a progression where he's, he's saying there that he's talking about our conduct. You notice that in verse 15. In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. Uh, so he's speaking about our behavior. He's teaching us about how we're supposed to live, how a Christian's life is supposed to look. And that's what he's been talking about. And you'll remember that. You know, he's been talking about men and women and about uh, overseers and deacons and, and what, what this Christian life is supposed to look like. So there's this idea about our, our conduct. But then he talks about the church. He says, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And of course, in the Bible, the word church is never referred to, it's never referring to a a building. Um, We build buildings because um, we need them. But the But in the New Testament, the word church is never referring to a building. It's referring to the people. We are the church, the people that God has worked in their lives and called them out to himself. They've become uh, actual believers in Jesus Christ. That is the church. So he's talking about our conduct, but it's the conduct as the people of God. And then that people of God, he goes on, then he says, look what it is at the end of verse 15. He says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So he's talking about the people of God are the pillar of the truth, which is interesting. We, if we had more time, we'd go into this in more detail. But the truth is that which causes the church to come into being. And yet the church, in another sense, is the pillar and support of the truth. It's, on, it's through the people of God that the, that the truth of God is manifest to the world. And then, though, in this transit, this uh, progression, he's talking about our conduct in the people of God. He's talking about truth. Then there's this great expression of truth that follows. And he says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. And now he's come back to where he started. Because godliness, as we think of it, Godliness is referring to our conduct. Godliness is referring to our lives, or so we think of it. Um, But it's not just our behavior, but it's our behavior with God in the picture, with an orientation to God. Some translations of the Bible will put the word devotion there. Great is the mystery of devotion. Let's think about that for a moment. People 
um, are devoted to various ways of improving their relationship with God or expressing their relationship with God or just um, experiencing a relationship with God. There's great devotion comes to play when people want to experience God. Some people express this devotion of theirs um, well, people do this in various ways. Let's think not just even in a Christian way, but in, in a general way. Some people turn to meditation. And there are many forms of meditation. We hear a lot about some of these forms in our, in our culture. I'm not here referring to Christian meditation, but there are some forms of meditation in which people focus their mind on just one thing. And there's other forms of meditation in which they try to empty their minds, just to empty and not think on anything. And in that state of meditation, and they're devoted to that, they feel like they touch the spiritual. Other people express their devotion in in terms of diet and bodily discipline. They expect that by eating only certain foods and in certain ways, their connection with God will be enhanced. Or they practice certain disciplines of the body, their actual physical body, either in exercise or stretching or posture. And this discipline of their body is then a, a channel which they expect to experience God. But Christians, you'll, you'll, you'll think about Christian devotion or godliness. Often Christians think about Bible reading and prayer, right? It's Bible reading and prayer. As we discipline ourselves in those two uh, practices, we see that as godliness. Or others look at rites and ceremonies of the church. They submit to religious officials, whether they're pastors or priests or others. And as the religious ceremonies are performed and certain words are recited, they sense that their devotion is paying off and perhaps there's a, an experience of God there. And they consider that godliness or devotion. With others, it's rules to follow, God-given rules. And they see that a devotion to the following of these rules and laws that are handed down by God, the devotion to the following of those rules, and that devotion to the rule following is our main way to be godly, to experience godliness. But did you know that none of these, none of these are the essence of godliness? Look at verse 16 again. It says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now that word mystery, and we've mentioned it before because it's occurred already in the book of 1 Timothy. But that word mystery is not meaning that there's something you can't understand. But it means that it's, there's something that's unknown and then it's revealed. So we can know it now because it's been revealed. Well, what is it that has been revealed? Because what's, what he's getting ready to say that's been revealed, that's going to be the mystery of godliness and devotion. Paul is going to tell us by the inspiration of the Spirit, here it comes. 
by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And the next word, he, he, he. You see, the essence of godliness, the essence of real devotion is not mental focus. It's not mental emptying. It's not diet regimes. It's not physical discipline. It's not Bible reading and prayer. It's not ceremonies and rites. It's not following rules. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Now, someone might say, now, wait a minute, though. I thought we're talking about godliness. We're talking about something in our own life. That's right. That's right. Follow the apostle as he, as he writes here. And think with me at how the essence and the core and the foundation of that which we would even call godliness in our own lives is not even in us. The essence of it is Jesus Christ himself. In verse 16, what follows are six lines. And almost all Bible commentators, actually I don't know of any who disagree, think that this is an old hymn. It's an it's a ancient um, early church hymn or song. Most likely it was sung, but there's these six lines in it. Some people... Uh, kind of try to figure out, is this three stanzas of two lines each, or is it two stanzas of three lines each? And some people get all mixed up in the, in the details. I'm not going to worry about that so much, but, but there's tremendous truth here, and we'll see that the truth that's being spoken of here is the core of our faith, and it's, it's there that true godliness is found. Many think that this is the actual core of the entire book of 1 Timothy, that these six lines are the core. Everything that came before, everything that follows after comes out of these six lines. And I want us to note that it's all about Jesus Christ and it exalts him. And it's my prayer this morning that, that we will see Jesus Christ perhaps in ways we haven't seen before. I want to look at what I'm calling the sixfold glory of Jesus Christ. First, the eternal Son of God became one of us. You see there in that first line, He who was revealed in the flesh, He was made manifest in the flesh. In other words, this one who's, who's being spoken of already existed. He existed already, but now he's being known, made known. He's being revealed. He's being manifested. But where? In the flesh. He existed outside the flesh. Now he is in the flesh, in a body. John Flavel, who you'll hear more about tonight if you come tonight, He said this, a commentator, a a pastor from long ago, he said, this is an astonishing mystery that God should be manifest in the flesh, that the eternal God should truly and properly be called the man Christ Jesus. It would have seemed a rude blasphemy 
had not the scriptures plainly revealed it, to have thought or spoken of the eternal God as born in time, the world's creator as a creature, the ancient of days as an infant of days. But this is what's being said, that God, the eternal one, being a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the second person of the Trinity comes and becomes one of us. He takes upon himself flesh and blood. He's not acting as a play. He's not pretending to be something he's not. He is actually becoming a human being. And yet he becomes a human in such a way that he does not become sinful. But he becomes one of us. In John chapter 1, we recited it already this morning. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And a few verses later then it says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so it says here, he who was revealed in the flesh, God himself has made himself visible to us as one of us. The eternal son of God became one of us. Now, secondly, secondly, the crucified son of God rose from the dead. Now, you might say, no, where did you find that? It's in the second line. Was vindicated in the spirit. Was vindicated in the spirit. You might say, no, wait a minute, though. Where, where do you find the crucifixion there? Well, let me, let me explain. Vindicated. To be vindicated means to be proven to be who you said you were or to have done what you said you did. How do I know that Christ, that what Christ said is true? It boils down to his resurrection. And the language of this verse, vindicated and in the spirit, is found in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. I'll, I'll read it for you. Where it says, concerning his son, God's son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh who was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, he was declared, it says there in Romans one, he was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And the spirit of God was involved in that resurrection. And so that's where I see the language of Romans 1 is, is the language here of this second line of this poem, of this ancient song, was vindicated in the spirit. His resurrection proves that what he said about himself is true. And his resurrection shows that what he went to the cross to do succeeded and was accepted by God. I've said this before and I'll say it again. There, there Jesus goes to the cross. And we understand now, the people standing there didn't see it at the time, but we understand that he, by going to the cross, was substituting himself for us. So that as the, the lamb, 
as the substitute, he's going to stand in for the sinner. That's you and me. And the punishment from God that the sinner deserves is going to fall on on the substitute instead of on the actual sinner. Right? We're together. And so he suffers and he dies. And he's buried. His lifeless, cold body is put in a tomb. And the stone is rolled up against the tomb. And we are left to wonder, did the substitution work? Was the payment enough? Is the justice of God satisfied? Or am I still, me, the sinner, for whom he died, am I still going to have to do something to pay for my sin? Am I still going to have to pay for my sin somehow, to make up for it somehow? Or did he, as my substitute, did he succeed? Did it work? Amen. And why do we know it? Because on the third day, he rose from the dead. Amen? He rose from the dead. And his resurrection from the dead shows that heaven has agreed with what happened on the cross. Heaven, the justice of God is satisfied. And now the way to God is broken open for us through Jesus Christ. The crucified son of God rose from the dead, vindicated by the spirit. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, we know that that is true because he rose from the dead. Amen? He rose from the dead. And that resurrection is a great statement that heaven accepted his ransom payment for sinners. So, let's go on to the third aspect here of the sixfold glory of Jesus Christ. And I say it this way, the victorious. Now this is, let me stop for a minute. This is a little weird the way I'm going to say this, but I'll explain it. I didn't know exactly how to say it, but I want to say it to make you think. The victorious son of God has cosmic purposes. Oh boy. What do you mean by that? Look at that line seen by angels. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, seen by angels. Now we know that angels appear throughout the gospel accounts of the life of Christ. Remember, the angels appeared at his birth. The angels were present at his temptation in the wilderness. The angels are mentioned as being in the garden of Gethsemane. The angels are um, mentioned in relation to the cross. The angels are there at the tomb. Remember that? When the women came to find the body, who did they meet? The angels. And the angels are there at Christ's ascension. Remember they said to him, why are you standing there looking in the clouds? He's going to come back the same way and I get to work. Well, the get to work part I added, I think it was implied, but it's especially interesting to me 
that having just come off this phrase vindicated in the spirit, which I believe is a reference to the resurrection. Then it says seen by angels. It's especially notable to me that the first messengers of the resurrection were angels. And they spoke it to Jesus followers. You remember in Matthew 28, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Those words came out of angels. You see, the angelic realm could see very clearly What was happening, even though the human realm didn't grasp it? And did you know that the angelic realm right now still sees very clearly what you and I struggle to grasp? Listen with me if you want to turn there, you can. It's on page 1391. It's Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. Paul is writing, and listen to these words. He says, now to me, so this is Ephesians 3. I hear some pages turning, so I'll wait a moment. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 8. Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Gentiles means the nations. To preach to the nations the unfathomable riches of Christ. He says, what, what an unbelievable um, Grace that's been given to me, he says. Now skip to verse 10. He's doing that. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So as he preaches and as people respond and believe and are gathered into bodies of believers, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. See, he says it's being made known through the church. But the question is being made known to who? Who is it that's seen this manifold wisdom of God? Listen. To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's the angelic realm is watching what is happening. The angelic realm today now is seeing what God is doing through the earth. In Allentown, among the Ndengareko, Everywhere, He's, the angelic realm is watching and beholding the manifest wisdom of God. They still see it clearly. And then notice that this is all a part of God's purposes. Let's look at verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The victorious Son of God has cosmic purposes. What God is doing on the earth is bigger than just you and me. Amen? There is a angelic realm. There is a spiritual, I don't know, you can use the word dimension, however you want to say it. But there's, there are spiritual, there are angelic creatures that have been created that every once in a while when God so chooses, we catch a glimpse of them. But most of our life we don't see them and yet they're real. And they're a part of God's creation. And they're a part of God's purposes. The purpose of the victorious Son of God is bigger than just saving your soul. 
the purposes of the victorious son of God include this entire planet, every, every piece of creation in every galaxy, and every creature in the spiritual realm, the angelic realm. He has cosmic purposes, great big purposes that are bigger than you and me. Don't ever reduce your Savior to being just your Savior. He is the Savior, the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Amen? And He is working His purposes. And bless His name, He's made us a part of those purposes in His grace. Wow. We get to be a part of it. Fourth. The gracious son of God is being announced to the world. Look at the next phrase. Seen by angels. And then he says, proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations. You see, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the commission to his disciples that was setting in motion then what would occur then in the in the history of the world to follow in Matthew 28 you remember and listen and listen how he says it even in light of what I've just said about him having cosmic purposes listen he says it says in Matthew 28:18 and Jesus came up and spoke to them the disciples saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That commission was given to his disciples before he and then he, he then later ascended into heaven. And that commission and their obedience set in motion what we're experiencing today. Almost 2,000 years later on another continent, here we are believers in Jesus Christ. Amen? Because God has been working and the gracious Son of God is being announced to the whole world. And we get to be a part of it as we participate with God in announcing the Son of God to people who have yet to understand him or to know him. And in this, I'd like to just say this, that Jesus is the only one worthy to have the whole world's attention and applause. Uh, just the other day, I was listening to a CD of a musician and, and I didn't realize it. It was on the, it was on the internet. It was, uh, I was listening to this music and I didn't realize that this one song, apparently it was recorded on a, at a live concert and it was the last song in the concert. I didn't know that as I was listening to it. So it gets to the end and he's, he's a very good musician. So it gets to the end and there's all this applause and the, they kept the tape recorder running. So there's all this applause and you hear him cheering and they kept cheering and cheering and cheering. Until he did what? He gave an encore. So you could tell, even though I couldn't see, there's no screen, I'm just listening. But you could tell he was done and then he walks back in the stage. And the crowd's noise goes great. Cheering and, and, and yelling and clapping. My friend, there is only one. There is only one person. That is worthy to have a, the, a cosmic 
worldwide encore. There is only one who is worthy of every single human being to worship and give their attention to and their adoration on and applause to. And not only us, but the angels. There is only one who is worthy of the entire world's attention and applause and adoration. And that one is Jesus Christ. The gracious son of God is being announced to the world, the whole world. Fifthly, the sovereign son of God will triumph. He's being announced to the world, but guess what? It's going to work. God's plan is going to succeed. It says, believed on in the world. You see that? Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Not only will Jesus Christ be proclaimed, he will be believed on. This is an amazing statement of faith. Can you believe this? This is a very early church statement of faith. Put to song, apparently. Put to music. So there they were, a persecuted minority. They had no political power. They had no influence to speak of in any kind of human way in their society. And they said that Jesus Christ was going to be proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. They believed in Jesus' ultimate triumph. And you know what? It's not just their minority status that makes this an amazing statement of faith, but it's the sinful hearts of men and women that makes this an amazing statement of faith. You mean men and women and young people whose hearts are so ruined by sin that their minds can't really understand in a saving way their own problem with sin and what Jesus has done to fix it. We can't even understand that because our sin has messed up our minds so bad. And our hearts, our emotions are so wrongly twisted by sin that we love the things that are, that are evil and we hate the things that are good. And our will, Our volition, that part of us that decides, has been ruined by sin so that we can't even choose what is right. The world is filled with people like that. And yet they said, he will be believed on in the world. I think it's because they believe Jesus. John 6 verse 44, you know what Jesus said? He said, no one can come to me. Unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, our salvation is from beginning to end. It's, it's, it's God. Amen. Oh yes, we believe. Don't worry. I'm not saying we don't, we believe, but, but we only believe because God has drawn us to himself. No one comes to me, he says, unless the father who sent me, draws him. And when God draws people to himself, they come to faith. And then it says, and I will raise them up on the last day. Their salvation is sure because it's me who's saving them, Jesus said. God is saving people. He's succeeding. He will triumph in his plan. Do you believe that? The sovereign son of God 
will triumph in his plan. And lastly, the exalted son of God will be eternally glorified. It says they're taken up in glory, taken up in glory. In one sense, this probably refers to his ascension into heaven. But in another sense, I, I believe it, 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 it alerts us to the eternal glory that Jesus will enjoy. But can you imagine the reception in heaven that Jesus received when he ascended then up into heaven after having died? And been crucified and buried and then risen from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven. The shouts of the crowd. Crucify him. Crucify him. Are still ringing in the ears of people down on earth. When heaven opens. And the resurrected eternal son of God. With scars on him. Enters heaven. And the angels sing and shout and glorify the eternal son of God. And humans, scorn of him is lost. And heaven's praise has rung since that moment and will ring forevermore. My friend, the exalted son of God will eternally be glorified. It makes me think of Revelation 7, 9, where it says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples, remember, he is going to reign victorious, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne. And to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. My friend, this is the mystery of godliness. It's not what you do. It's who you trust. It's not how you worship. It's who you worship. It's not a regime that you follow. It's who you follow. It's not a matter of keeping laws, but of who you love. If your life is consumed with Jesus Christ, the rest will take care of itself. The eternal son of God is our godliness. Most sermons I labor a bit to try to apply this to your life and I'm not going to today I'm just going to lift Christ up and trust that you'll sense in your own life that Jesus Christ is your godliness do you trust him have you submitted to him have you fallen away a bit and need to re-establish to get back to God and surrender again and follow him Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow and confess together 
that you, the eternal Son of God, became one of us. You, the crucified Son of God, rose from the dead. You, the victorious Son of God, have purposes that go well beyond us and encompass the angelic realm. You, the gracious Son of God, are proclaimed among the nations. You, the sovereign Son of God, will triumph. You, the exalted Son of God, will be magnified and glorified for eternity. Lord Jesus, be our godliness, we ask. Amen.